The joy to this point of this day is only enhanced by the ability God has given us again to assemble this evening and to do so with a measure of health and goodness that the day has brought and the appreciation of being able to not only exalt the beautiful and majestic name of God, but also, of course, to encourage ourselves in the most holy faith as this week now stands before us that we each might live soberly, righteously, and godly within this present world. Titus chapter 2, verse number 12. As we've come together tonight, certainly we might do well to again be so appreciative and thankful for the men who led our services last Lord's Day. I think last Sunday evening, Brother Adam delivered the lesson and as was done throughout the other parts of that day, did a terrific job. We continue to be so mightily blessed. So many other congregations have so few who are willing and eager and so excited to use their talents in that way. And yet at Pippin, we are so blessed with many young men very capable very capable gentlemen who are interested in and serious about presenting the Word of God. We're so thankful for that avenue, and tonight we come to a study of one of the most familiar sections of the Old Testament. It is the 23rd Psalm. As that was read in our hearing just a moment ago, I'm sure it rang so familiar in many ways. I would invite tonight, though, in light of some of these comments on this next slide, that we might revisit the 23rd Psalm. In fact, isn't it amazing that there are some passages that perhaps have been referenced so often over the years that we almost recognize them. In fact, many in the world might even recognize they've heard that somewhere. They may not be able to tell you where it is at or perhaps even that it's in the Bible, but they know they've heard it. In fact, some of the parables of Jesus are just that familiar. Like the Good Samaritan, perhaps even the rich man Lazarus, Individuals have heard enough references to those that they're aware that they are mightily powerful in terms of their presentation. Not only that, perhaps some of the avenues of those passages about the Lord's death are again familiar enough that many are familiar with them. The same is true of some Old Testament passages. O oh Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Perhaps the most familiar refrain in all the book of Jeremiah, chapter 10, verse 23. In addition to that, though, one might do well to include in that listing the 23rd Psalm. Its six verses have been read so many times. It no doubt is the most familiar passage at funerals. In so many ways, it is the standard that takes place at the place of interment. It is, in fact, that common. It is the case, though, tonight I would ask that we look back at the 23rd Psalm, perhaps revisit it, give it some additional consideration, cast the spotlight upon it perhaps in a way unlike the times we've done in the past. And as we do that, what is the 23rd Psalm saying to you and me today? Are there principles, precepts, thoughts that we might take from it and use it to guide our way perhaps tomorrow and through this week that really is a fascinating consideration? It is with that in mind, in fact, that I would ask we do that very thing. For here are just a few of the ways the passage has been used. Some, perhaps many troubled souls throughout the centuries have read it and reread it with an interest to find the comfort and strength to be found within it. Others who find themselves in elements of despair have found fortitude and encouragement there. Others who perhaps are on the brink of losing their way have found refreshment to their soul of the 23rd Psalm. For those reasons and many others, I think the 23rd Psalm would be vital and in fact useful for us to revisit this evening. 
without any further ado, let's turn our attention then to the 23rd Psalm and in fact try to first place it in its setting. What can be said about the arrangement of it? Is anything special about that? It would seem to me that some of these comments are at least worthwhile. First of all, let us give some thought to the psalm that precedes it and then also to the psalm that succeeds it. Psalm 22 is without question a remarkable prophecy casting the spotlight on what would occur roughly a thousand years later when our Savior was in fact crucified. Many elements in the 22nd Psalm are in fact exactly those that we find described and quoted in regard to the Lord's crucifixion. Wasn't it in fact this very Psalm that Jesus quoted while He hang on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's taken from Psalm 22, verse 1. Later, we also find that they pierced my hands and my feet, seemingly a very clear prophecy of what they were going to do to the Savior. Two verses later, the psalmist here spoke about the dividing and the casting of lots for the garments of one who he referenced. That took place in regard to what those Roman soldiers did to the garments of our Savior. It seems then so clear the 22nd Psalm pointed so dramatically to what the Savior accomplished at Calvary. However, what about the 24th Psalm, the one just after the one that is of interest to us this evening? Perhaps it's interesting to note the 24th Psalm seems to refer to the Lord's ascension to glory. In particular, the last two verses of that chapter, Psalm 24, verses 9 and 10. There, as reference is made to the King of glory we have the following rather amazing and interesting statement. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. There's an amazing reference, isn't there, too? The King of glory was going to occupy His rightful place on the throne of glory. Here that seems to be a reference to the ascension of our Master after leaving the confines of this earth, having been resurrected. He did ascend in Acts 1 verses 9 through 11. And as Daniel foretold, He did receive their dominion, a kingdom, power, and majesty. And He of course reigns to this day over the spiritual throne of Israel, doesn't He? It is with thoughts like that in mind we might then give some thought. What is this psalm that falls between them? Psalm 22 gives us a foretaste, a picture, if you please, of the Lord's crucifixion, the marvel that surrounded it. Psalm 24 turns their attention to His ascension to glory. What might be the message, at least in part, that you and I might draw from the 23rd Psalm? I mentioned earlier that frequently is used at death. Folks read it at a funeral home. Could it have a deeper significance than that? Might it have messages for you and for me long before we die and long before we reach the point of our body being in a casket? Could it be that today and tomorrow and this week there are powerful repercussions of truth to be found in Psalm 23 that you and I can use to hang the absolute character of the kind of integrity God would wish us to have and the kind of life He would wish us to know? Perhaps in light of that, these comments at the bottom seem to direct us toward the answer being yes. It's surely as it seems to have reflection to some matters perhaps in Jesus' life that fell between the matter of the crucifixion and the matter of the ascension. That would highlight His burial, that would highlight His resurrection. 
maybe as we find elements in this that recall those matters to us, at least in principle, it can have great meaning for you and for me even as well. Let's do that the following way by returning then to the opening saga of Psalm 23 and approaching it with this title, that familiar refrain that begins verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd. Let's reread the first three verses of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Pausing at that point at the conclusion of verse 3, here are some thoughts that perhaps help us appreciate the one who wrote this and the kind of thinking by inspiration of God that prompted the messages to be found in it. We well know that David was certainly familiar with the life of a shepherd, the work that went into keeping sheep and tending to them. In 1 Samuel 16, when the time came that God commissioned Samuel to anoint David as the next king of Israel, when he arrived to make discussion with Jesse and the other members of the family, David was not even present. And as the sons were passed before Samuel, none of them were the one that God had selected. It was Samuel who asked, Are these all the sons? They admitted quickly, No, the youngest is still out keeping the sheep. And they were told, Bring him. It was that one that was selected. David was tending to sheep. We notice one chapter later in 1 Samuel 17, even his brothers ridiculed him for that very activity. At the time when they were about to, in fact, engage Goliath, that is, David was, as he came to that, Eliab, the oldest of the brothers, wasn't it he who somewhat ridiculed David? You go back and tend to those few sheep. We're the ones to take care of battle. You see, David was well acquainted with sheep keeping, well acquainted with the activities of a shepherd. And yet, isn't it amazing that he here said, The Lord is my shepherd. He portrayed himself as a sheep. He turned the tables around appreciating the fact that though he had often taken care of sheep, having been responsible for providing for them, ensuring they had water and pasture land, ensuring that they had the safety that was worthwhile for them. David now described himself in just that same condition. The Lord is my shepherd. I am viewing myself as a sheep. How often do you and I perhaps view ourselves that way? As those in need of a shepherd... A sheep, I am told, is in dire need of one to provide for and guide that sheep. In need of one who can provide the leadership and he so often will follow that one recognized as the one who's taken care of it throughout the years. David said, the Lord is my shepherd. Despite the fact he had been and perhaps was king of Israel at this time, he nonetheless in humility understood that he needed a shepherd to lead him. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? It may be that you and I don't often think of ourselves as sheep, but yet that was one of the most common thoughts of David, it seems. Have you read the 100th Psalm lately, Psalm 100, when he says, We are the sheep of His pasture, you and I. When we consider ourselves in that light, that we indeed are the sheep of His pasture and ever so needful of His leadership as our shepherd, it takes us directly back to the wording of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. 
What will be the benefit of that? David says, I shall not want. That word want in the Hebrew means to lack. With the Lord as my shepherd, David said, I will lack nothing. All the necessary accompaniments and provisions of my life will have been taken care of. I will lack nothing that is needful for me. Wasn't it Jesus who joining in the discussion of that point in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 24, if we may in fact note perhaps the most memorable of the verses of that passage in verse 33, that seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, but note the last part, all these things shall be added unto you. He did not say they might be, they could be, it's possible they will be. He said they shall be. David said, I shall lack nothing. I shall not want. The Lord also went on to discuss other avenues in which those provisions were made. In Philippians 4 verse 19, the inspired apostle Paul said, My God shall supply all your needs. There's no promise in the Bible He'll provide us with extravagances and luxuries. He often does the faithful to be sure. But we are promised He shall provide our needs. Isn't it amazing to give thought that here in the long ago David said, I shall not want. As he gives reflection upon that point, he takes us to the great blessing and benefit that the God of heaven provides. It has often been a notable matter to give thought to Malachi 3 verses 8 through 10. On the occasion of that passage, that particular prophet often presents the truth by way of question. And there, as God introduces the thought in verse 8, He said, Shall a man rob God? Will it be the case that a person will rob the God of heaven? The people were quick to say, Oh, of course not. We haven't robbed you. But God says, You have robbed me. The God of heaven directly told those of Malachi's day, You have robbed me. And they said, How have we robbed you? In a sense, they made a mistake to ask that question. Because God says, you have kept back from me the things whereby you could have provided them by your generosity to my cause. Your money, your talents, your time, you've withheld it all from me. And as a result, I have in fact closed the windows of heaven and have not poured out a blessing upon you so, much, so great that you would not even be able to hold it. That helps to teach us a lesson too, doesn't it? When you and I are stingy with God... He will hold back from us the greatness of all that He otherwise might well provide, so great that you and I will not be able to hold all of it. We are our own worst enemy when we are stingy with God, aren't we? Here we notice God blessed Abraham with plentifulness. He blessed a rich man in Luke 12 with plentifulness, and that rich man dutifully sent about in selfishness to withhold it. Look what my hands have brought forth. I will pull down my barns and build bigger ones, and I will store up my goods that I have reaped. And I will say unto my soul, Soul, take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry, for thou hast many goods laid up for many years. Wasn't it God who had the last say? Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee, and then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? Luke 12, verses 15 to 18. Doesn't it remind us here that David, far from an attitude like that, simply said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. 
He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. What about the condition of your soul and mine tonight? Is it resting in green pastures? Isn't that a beautiful poetic description? We can think about a sheep well satisfied and grazing in a nice, green, lush pasture. Now transfer that thought to the condition of your soul, your spirit and mind. Is it currently feeding in a lush, green arena of spirituality? Is the provision of a spiritual character something of which we're availing ourselves? If not, it isn't the Lord's fault. He, as our shepherd, will take us to these places. Are we being a dutiful sheep? Are we not following the master? Are we not following the shepherd? As surely as we have thus discussed those great physical blessings, it seems without question the central message of the opening parts of this psalm is the spiritual aspect. And that, of course, calls upon all of us to ask ourselves the leading question, How faithful a sheep have I been? How faithful a sheep are you? The shepherd will lead if we will let him. If we will simply follow his leadership, this good shepherd of whom we're speaking, the Lord will lead us into these marvelous green pastures and where there's plentifulness of water. Didn't Jesus say, I am the bread of life, John 6, 48? Didn't He affirm that He will provide living waters out of whom a man can, in fact, drink thereof and never thirst again, John 4, 14? Didn't Jesus promise, in fact, He would be the way, the truth, and the life? And no man cometh unto the Father but by me, John 14, 6. The marvel of these opening passages of the Psalm 23 helps us appreciate, doesn't it, so directly the wording of about the first half of John, the 10th chapter. Jesus in that made a description of the fact. He said, I am the door. If any man enter by me, he shall go in and out and find pasture. And thus again, the question. In that same description, in verses 9 and 11, he said, I am the good shepherd. Are you and I following the shepherd? Do we want to follow him when it's convenient for us only? Or, do we, or, or are we happy to follow him any and all the time? content to trust in Him as a faithful shepherd, ever with our best interest at heart, ever with our desirous of being with Him for eternity. The 23rd Psalm is a rather ennobling passage in many ways, isn't it? The Lord is my shepherd. Do you and I say that and mean it? It might be easy for those words to roll off our lips or perhaps even pass our mind in thought. Do we mean that? That, of course, means, as we hear Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice and follow me, but they'll not follow the voice of a stranger because they know his voice. Do you and I know the voice of the Master? Do we dutifully, happily, contentedly, and joyously follow him? Just as he here said, or David affirmed in the long ago, The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. Did you notice verse number 3? In that verse, we again appreciate, He restoreth my soul. As we've noted earlier, so much of a spiritual emphasis, but with it, what about the condition of your soul, dear friend, and mine? Are you troubled? Troubled to the point where your faith is perhaps shaking or trembling beneath a load of affliction that rests upon it. If it is, what about appreciating again? Who and where shall restoration come? Who and where shall there be the one to provide the additional 
support necessary for you to endure successfully and emerge victoriously. Perhaps you have read that poem called Footprints in the Sand. It's a poem that's pretty common. You see it on all kinds of pictures, and you see it oftentimes in discount stores written on various items and emblems. Though the entirety of it would be a bit lengthy for us to consider, the basic idea is so simple, isn't it? A gentleman has a dream, and in this dream he in fact sees a seashore, and there are footprints on that seashore, and there are two sets of footprints. However, he's a bit bothered because there comes a time when he just sees one set of footprints and he's puzzled because that seems to coincide identically with the most difficult, the most terrible, and the most burdensome, troubling times in his life. This all, the setting of this takes place near the end of his life and so he asks, Jesus, I thought you promised to be with me and you were so much of the time. But the thing is so odd to me, you left me when I needed you the most. As that poem unfolds, the final statement of Jesus is, I never left you. That's when I carried you. Interesting, isn't it, how that in the act of carrying him, then the person came to understand. Perhaps David had that thought here all along, He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Those paths of righteousness that are so beautiful because you and I know that they come from God and those paths of righteousness are set forth in His Word and it is by following them that you and I can know all the goodness, of course, that God would have in store for us here and the marvelous wonder of what He has in store for us hereafter. To this point in Psalm 23 as we've looked at the first three verses, we perhaps could give thought of some of the avenues in David's life. Think about some of the troubles that he endured. Family troubles, he had them. You might recall that one of his sons, Amnon, raped his half-sister in 2 Samuel 13. Another one of his sons, Absalom, killed Amnon for doing that. We remember that same boy, Absalom, ultimately had such disrespect for David, his own father. He attempted to remove David from the throne and in fact even treated him despitefully. He had his own troubles. Wasn't it true? Saul tried to take his life on more than one occasion. He in fact had to run as a renegade across the countryside trying to preserve his own well-being. And yet from this same person we hear him say, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If you and I face these difficulties in life, problems that may be extreme, can we not always remember that there is one who cares for us? There is one who has our best interest at heart and who desires us to lean and to rely always upon Him. Some thoughts that are found near the middle point of that slide. We notice also in light of this how there is such provision We've noted that the shepherd provides for the sheep. Think what the Lord provides for us. In Ephesians 1, 7, do we not read, In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins through His blood. In Revelation 1, verse 5, on that occasion we read that it is He who washed us from our sins in His own blood. The marvelous blood of Christ and all the power that's contained within it. That blood was shed for you and me and oh, what provision is in it. A provision for a lifetime of spiritual strength. Provision for a lifetime 
of access to all the open, great pastures that God spiritually has for us. As you and I feed then upon the Word of God and the blessings of Him, do we not read in Ephesians 1-3 that all spiritual blessings are found in Christ? You and I thus need to ever seek the, the shepherd. And to seek Him in such a way, we appreciate the avenue that we find described for us in the New Testament. What a great provision it really is. But as if that isn't enough, you might note with me some of these thoughts as well. In it, we notice an element of assurance. As we look at verses 4 through 6 of Psalm 23, let's not only study them as well, but then make some concluding remarks to attempt to pull the entirety of all six verses together. Verse number 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As again, often you and I have heard that read, perhaps even observed that it was utilized on so many occasions, again, associated with death. It may be that verse 4 has been the reason for that selection. But you might note with me that the text says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The valley of the shadow of death. The Hebrew rendering, in fact, points us in this very meaning. The valley of death-like shadows. As I hear that and read that, I think about those difficulties and great they are in life. Maybe you can picture driving down a roadway and there are overhanging trees that make it look so dark, especially as the shades of evening gather about. And maybe there's reason for fear in what may lie ahead. Things that might be in the road, things that might result from traveling when the way is not as clear as one might like. The valley of death-like shadows. Sometimes those shadows do bring to mind thoughts of fear, thoughts of trembling difficulty, Thoughts of uncertainty, and we're all bothered, I suppose, to one degree or another by uncertainty. In our world, the economy is uncertain. Wall Street is up and down. Those who are in legislature and government are uncertain what to do about this and that and the other. And they allow their uncertainty and failure from resulting of the Word of God to in part cause much of that. But sometimes, even personally in life, uncertainties can be so problem. What do I do? How do I face this? Sometimes when families, when problems arise, be it with children or with parents, we may each have to face decisions when dad or mother gets to a point their health begins to fail. How do I best care for them? Maybe the answer isn't as clear as we would like. Our children may, in fact, bring questions to us or approach us with concepts and ideas, entertaining thoughts that trouble us and bother us because we're fearful of where it may lead. All the while, we notice that there can be death-like shadows. The psalmist here says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of these death-like shadows, I will fear no evil. You see, there is something to be said that even though fear can be healthy in that it keeps us in the right regard, we do learn in 1 John 4 that love casteth out fear. There is a love that you and I enjoy that overrides the existence of that fear and points us and keeps us focused and tuned to the place that we ought to be. 
I will fear no evil. You see, the psalmist, even despite the death-like shadows, could have an inner confidence and an inner peace that he was not afraid of the existence of evil. You and I earlier, though, noted that included Saul, it included evil men, it included those that wanted his life, and yet he could say, I fear no evil. David, it seems, was well aware not only of the existence of that, but of the overwhelming confidence and the overwhelming security that his shepherd could provide. It would seem to me that a sheep might in some sense have an element of security also in light of the appearance and of the presence of that shepherd. Think of how often a particular sheep might, with perhaps the shepherd's staff, have been kept from getting too close to a ledge or a precipice. Or think of how often that shepherd's staff might have been there to ward off a wolf or another animal. Or how often that shepherd might have been there to keep at bay thieves and others that, whose interest it was to do harm. You see, the death-like shadows were kept at bay. And it was such that the fear of evil had no, had no occasion to arise. Does your life and mine have a description like that? Are we sufficiently confident and sufficiently grounded in the elements of God's grace, mercy, truth, and love, that you and I can feel the same, knowing the shepherd is with us, and knowing the shepherd will guide. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Those death-like shadows, you see, are met with comfort because of the staff and the rod of the shepherd. We just noted earlier some of the things that that staff and rod may often have provided. What about the similar means that you and I consider God's provision and blessing for us? Are we as thankful as we could be? Do we thank God in prayer often enough? I'm thankful, God, what you've done for me. Maybe in hindsight, sometimes that's easier to see than when we're actually in the present case. When we're walking through those death-like shadows, sometimes it isn't very pleasant. However, might we always remember that God chastens those that He loves. Hebrews 12, verses 9 and following. Perhaps in light of that, verse number 5 takes us to the next element in this psalm. And in it we notice He says, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. It is amazing to give thought that some of these things about the very character of our Savior seemingly come to bear in the very way. The confidence that we have seen. In Psalm 55, 22, Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. In Psalm 56, verse number 11, In God have I put my trust. I will not fear what man can do unto me. Now those are mighty words I think we would all agree. Do we believe them the way the psalmist set them forth? In 1 Peter 5, 7, Casting your cares upon Him, for He careth for you. And on and on the Bible goes, reminding us that there is a God in heaven, and though great He is, He is aware of every element of detail in your life and mine. He is aware of the problems and indecisions we face, and He's there with aid, and He's there with help. Jesus, as you can see on this very passage, He too faced death, and He did it in such a difficult way. We've read so often of how they put him to death and the pain and the torture and the agony that he faced. And yet he was willing to do all of it because of you and me. 
as the Lord emerged, of course, from death, we know that He entered that Hadean realm, Acts 2.31. As Jesus approached death, the fear and the nature of the agony, of course, with a bothersome thing, and He prayed in Gethsemane for that He might, in fact, be removed from it. But nonetheless, with His understanding that it was the will of God, He consigned Himself to do exactly what God's will was. It is God's will, of course, that if the Lord delays His coming, all of us shall face death. Hebrews 9.27 Can we face it with confidence? Can we face it knowing that the shepherd has led us through life and he will guide us in death and on the other shore there will be bliss and that there will be peace? Peace in the valley, a song we've often sung and heard and read and considered One of the messages that Paul so joyfully presents to us is that as he approached death, weren't those the thoughts upon his heart? In 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 6, I fought a good fight, I finished my course, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but in all of them also that love is appearing. The finery and the grandeur of that kind of confidence is something that speaks volumes about what the Christian life affords. Because of those reasons, we notice that though you and I may be called on to tread through some dark valleys, nonetheless, Jesus has promised that I'll be there with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. And because of His promise of association, His promise to assist us, We understand that there's always even a way of escape when there's even sin and temptation before us. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It perhaps would be noted, as David makes the application in verse 5, that preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. That seems such an interesting description. Think, if you would, about a set of enemies. Enemies aren't too willing to provide anything. They're there to judge, and they're there to make things harsh, and they're there to make things bad, and they're there to accuse, and they're there to cause trouble. Enemies won't provide a table, and certainly with nothing bountiful on it. And yet David says in verse 5, Thou preparest a table before me in the very presence of mine enemies. Even they are able to appreciate the fact that I have a source of sustenance and a source of provision that they, in fact, do not have. And this source of provision, in fact, is such that it's described as a table before me and mine enemies. Furthermore, thou anointest my head with oil. Here I've been selected. In fact, anointed by one whose provision is far greater than what those enemies have to offer. And he says, My cup runneth over. How much did the shepherd provide? A little? Barely enough? Just enough to say he provided something? Of course not. He said, My cup runneth over. May we never forget that our God is able to provide. He in His bountiful mercy has all things at His disposal. He said in Psalm 24:1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He can, in fact, work in the affairs of nations to bring about the benefit for those that are His children. Isn't it true that God rules in the kingdoms of men? Daniel chapter 4, verse 25. For those reasons, we perhaps come to this last element. And the application to be seen in verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy 
shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a fitting way to conclude that psalm. Surely, there's an adverb indicative of an element of confidence, a degree of certainty. Surely, verse number 6, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. David had often tasted of God's mercy and provision. He'd been protected from Saul. He'd been protected from Absalom. He'd been protected in so many other regions and realms of life. And he could here make a straightforward matter of fact. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Are you and I as convicted as he was on that occasion? Can you and I say, surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me and you all the days of our life. And the icing on the cake is this, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now in this life, we understand the church is the house of God, 1 Timothy 3.15. And so you and I appreciate that as faithful members of that body, we are thus those that are in the Lord's house. But what about the occasion of the life after this one? Is it still your intent and mine to dwell always in the Lord's mansion? In John 14, beginning in verse 1, Jesus stated, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Isn't it interesting that here we read, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That should be the singular focus and goal of your life and mine. All things else ought to be tangent, less important than that. Priority number one, priority number one is to enter into heaven. David said, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Stephen in Acts the seventh chapter, as he preached a monumental sermon in which he in fact summarized Old Testament history, and it cut to the heart of many who heard him preach that day. In Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 59, as some of them responded, we notice the response was so different than what we might have hoped. Rather than being glad and happy that he pointed out to them their errors, pointed out to them the nature of their shortcomings, they didn't respond by confessing error, repenting of sin, and being baptized. They responded by picking up rocks and throwing them at Stephen. And they killed him. But you say they couldn't do away with the message. And they will again stand before the God of heaven and one day give an answer for the disposition of their life. Doesn't it help us see tonight that this life is a serious matter, isn't it? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you at this point are not in a position to appreciate the Lord as your shepherd, are you an undutiful sheep? wandering out on your own somewhere, 
with the precipices and ledges of danger all lurking about. If you are, please understand the urgency of your current position. You do not know when this life for you will end. It could end at any moment. And you could find yourself shortly before the judgment bar of God. You need to have been led by the shepherd. If you cannot say now that you're dwelling faithfully in the house of God, Psalm 23, 6. And if you now cannot say that if you die tonight, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, then there is an opportunity in just a moment. We're going to stand and sing this song of encouragement. And if you need to respond publicly, why not tonight? This 25th of September 2011 could be a tremendously great day in your eternal life. If we could assist you in that way tonight, perhaps you're an erring child of God, one who has been faithful but currently is not. Come back to your first love if you would please tonight. The Lord wants you to. He's pleading with you. He implores you to. But you must make the decision. If you've never become a child of God, why not do that also tonight? The baptismal waters behind me are prepared and ready. All things are ready and could be done in but a few moments that you too could have your sins washed away in baptism. If we could assist you tonight, won't you let it be known in the way we could help? While together we stand and while we sing.